This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 175, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboards.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Keith Smith, co-founder and CEO of Payability, to talk about attracting and retaining talent. And we will hopefully move beyond motherhood and apple pie. I recently compiled a list of the top dozen or so podcasts on nine key entrepreneurial abilities. Link in the show notes, but see londonfintechpodcast.com and click on the episode guide, which indexes all episodes on many bases. In doing so, I realised that I'd never done this most important of topics. Most important is without people to do the work, you have to do it all yourself, which will take quite some time and you'll never get to scale. The challenge, of course, of discussing this topic, which is one reason we've never discussed it before, is that most advice out there tends to be motherhood and apple pie. You know the kind of be nice to people, give them challenging work but not too challenging, support them, a good environment, etc, etc. Now, I'm being slightly sarky there, but... The point is that none of that advice is wrong. It's all entirely correct. However, if it was that simple, then every company would be doing it well. If you check out Glassdoor, it says otherwise, and some companies are not. Anyway, Keith tells me that he both likes motherhood and apple pie, yet as a serial entrepreneur and board member at many firms over the decades, he knows that there is some magic to this art beyond the obvious and simple, and will share his decades of experience. Oh, and I haven't mentioned Payability, which we'll get onto a little bit later, but they've provided an astonishing more than $3 billion in capital. So, I assume that Keith didn't do that all on his own, and I think he might know a thing or two. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Keith. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. It's great to be here. So, in terms of being here, I understand from what little I know about the world, the universe, life and everything, that it's actually greater to be where you are than to be where I am. In that where I am, I have to wait, oh, I I don't know, I I lose track, three months to go to a pub or a restaurant or something like that. But then I did hear an idea that you might actually be able to do that going to a restaurant thing where you are. That is true. Uh, New York has started to reopen restaurants. It has been a, a chilly fall to be, if you wanted to brave the restaurants in New York City, to sit in uh, sub-zero temperatures and and have a meal is, has been a real challenge. And so I did actually have my first indoor meal, socially distanced uh, and and felt relatively safe uh, um, just within the last couple of weeks. And it was uh, it was delightful. Let me just say. Oh dear. I think this is going to be one of the sort of shortest chit chatty intros going because uh, I can't spend the rest of the podcast in tears or sort of. Uh, being full of the green-eyed <laughs> god of envy or jealousy or, or, or whatever it is. Having somebody bring you a drink, Mike, is a fantastic thing that we have forgotten how amazing it really is. Yes, well, I think one of the things that uh, comes out of this, if it ever ends, and, and, and some days I'd certainly lose my faith that it will ever end, is uh, a very important kind of meta-spiritual lesson, which is in our increasingly complicated world. I mean, let's think of our great-grandparents a century ago, for example. Their lives were so much simpler. In our increasingly complicated world, we get caught up with abstractions and and, and really very complicated things, and we forget to be really grateful for the simple things. 
you know, and just like seeing people, just having a coffee, or as you say, someone bringing you a, a glass of Coke or beer or whatever, and you're feeling you're like you're in a social setting. So I hope that if, well, A, that we get out of it, and B, when we get out of it, that uh, all of us will have learned to appreciate the simple things in life a little bit more. So even if there's been a big cloud, at least there will have been a silver lining. I certainly hope so. And I think, I think each generation at least slightly redefines what it means to be human and what our humanity is. And it's a lot of little things that are, that are subtle. But when those things are suddenly taken away from us, I think that's when we, that's when we notice uh, what it is that, that we feel like makes up a life uh, as a human at this point in time. And, and yeah, the reality is for most of us, much of that has been stripped away this last year. And even for somebody like myself, who's an introvert, I actually miss social interaction. And that's not something that I would have, uh, would have imagined a year ago, I'd be saying. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of like a barbell approach in finance, which is I can be very gregarious or sociable, um, but equally be quite monastic. And as I mentioned before on the podcast, I actually self-isolated for almost the entire two and a half years before lockdown, <laughs> writing my book and getting up at half four in the morning, seeing and literally just seeing two people a month to do the podcast in London. And uh, yes, it leads quite nicely into this uh, topic, which will come on to a minute after your career journey. But I remember doing a gig. Oh, better part of a decade ago. I started with strategic consultancy and turned out to be an interim CMO for a fintech, actually. Interesting journey. Anyway, this company had various challenges, which they perceived as being one thing. But actually, I found pretty rapidly that the challenges were a different thing, which is they were all 20-something techies, all enamoured of the sort of tech world of bits and pixels and emails and all these other WhatsApps and, and all that kind of stuff. But what actually had happened was a certain amount of sort of lack of coherence, lack of being in the same sort of phase between the people because all they ever did was meet virtually. So my first sort of genius input to, to this business was, uh, we actually we got together in Vienna in the end, was, hey, let's all get together, go and have a few beers and just sort of have a laugh and a chat. And again, going back to the simple things in life and learning more over the decades than one you in the first place, that made a hell of a difference to the business because people actually got to interact as human beings rather than, oh, hang on, I've got another Zoom in one minute, you know, cheerio. That's right. And I think, I think one of the things that I've often, often felt is absolutely critical to the culture of any functional organization and especially a company is trust. Trust between the team members. Trust that they are doing the, the things that, that you expect them to be doing, that the folks to your left and to your right are holding up their end of the, of the bargain, whatever that bargain may be. And that trust is much harder to build when you are not literally breathing the same air, uh, when you are seeing each other in a two-dimensional kind of uh, dynamic, we have certainly found it that it's challenging to, or, or at least different, to, to, to build that trust. Yes, there's a TV series whose name escapes me, set in, um, in uh, Monkey World in the UK, which rescues apes and primates from around the world. Oh, it was on about a decade ago. I watched it when my girls were a bit younger. And I found that sort of really valuable. Now, in fact, I rewatched a few of them recently when I happened to sort of notice them coming by because one sees how much of what we think of human is actually not human. It's just simply primates. So primates have lots of micro interactions during the day. So, so for example, let's say we're working together in the office and, and you say, oh, Mike, I'm actually just popping out to the coffee shop. Do you want me to get me your coffee? And you come back and bring me a coffee. I won't consciously think of that. But subconsciously, I think, hey, this founder, this CEO I work for, he's, a, he's actually just a good bloke as well. You know, he's not sort of sitting on a throne with sort of a crown on his head and all that. You know, he sort of mucks in all that or he's just chatting in the coffee room. So you're quite right about the trust. I mean, I think of it in terms of uh, social glue, what bonds 
a herd of primates is not the right collective noun. <laughs> I've been locked down for two years. I need to read that one in the dictionary again. Whatever. A herd of primates, a group of primates together, whether they be people uh, or primates, is actually these sort of interactions. Anyway, we'll hopefully get back to them soon. So as we're teetering on the edge of discussing this subject in quite some depth, because if we do all of primate uh, history, it'll go on a little bit longer. Before we dive into that, as I mentioned, uh, you've got a, an interesting and varied career, Keith, and, and indeed you're on a board of a number of companies at the moment. So you will have seen this topic from many angles, uh, of course, including your, your own angle personally for quite some time. So maybe you could live, give listeners a little bit of an idea about sort of what happened um, for the last few decades for you. Yeah, so I, I decided at an early age that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So that was kind of part of the, the plan. It was baked into, in, into my plan. And I think that, that, that led me to an early uh, conclusion that I'm probably not going to be a very good employee. And I also, at the same time, really enjoy creating something where something didn't exist before. And, and that idea of being able to, to, to find a need, solve that need was uh, somewhere intrinsic and, and it just it, it was an itch that felt like needed to be scratched. So, so that kind of combination of either whether you call them character flaws or, or attributes, I'm not sure which one. Uh, I think in an entrepreneurial life, oftentimes uh, it's not quite clear which or which, uh, that it led me to, you know, to a, a career where I, want, I was going to be starting companies. And so uh, founding and starting companies and specifically tech companies was my interest, primarily just because of the potential leverage that you can gain in a, you know, in a technology enabled business. And so that's what I started doing in my early 20s. I'm, I'm currently on my sixth startup. I started, interestingly, my, my career in the fintech space uh, long before fintech was a word that had entered our, our lexicon. Which year are we talking about now, roughly speaking? Uh, this was in 1992. I started a company called Cyber Mortgage. Uh, that the name indicates the era. I think uh, when you when you hear that name, I cringe a little bit. Um, but the idea was a technology enabled um, a mortgage broker, and it, it failed uh, gloriously. Uh, I'd like to say it was ahead of its time. It may have been uh, significantly ahead of its time. Uh, it's an excuse a lot of us entrepreneurs like to use when our when our businesses don't uh, don't reach product market fit. But it was a great learning experience. Uh, it started me on an entrepreneurial journey, and then I spent most of my career in ad tech, starting and running companies in the ad tech space, but have recently, since 2015, come back to fintech when I, when I co-founded Payability. Ah, oh, excellent. Well, one thing I was pleased to hear you say was to talk about the idea of uh, the fact that intro- introverts can make very good entrepreneurs as well, because quite often, especially sort of for kind of the media lens, the likes of Steve Jobs or, or that, that guy who founded Uber, you know, those are the crazy guys <laughs> who are the crazy end of the extrovert spectrum tend to get the attention. And I'm always a little bit concerned that people who are a bit more shy and retiring and, and quiet feel that you've got to be that kind of, roughly speaking, lunatic to found one, whereas actually it's not true. And, and over the years, I've met many entrepreneurs be very fortunate. And I'd almost say that actually they're fairly evenly spread along the personality spectrum because it's not a question of your, your personality. It's a question of actually, you know, in, in football team terms, can you get the ball over the line in American football team terms? You know, do you win more games than you, than you lose and, and stuff like that? So you never actually worked for anybody else or just for a short period of time? I usually work for folks until they fired me. <laughs> so most of my jobs early in my career, I found myself having uncomfortable HR uh, discussions uh, about me not, not focusing enough on the work that I was supposed to be doing. Uh, usually it probably had something to do with me working on a business plan on the side. Uh, but but it, 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 uh, um, it was part of, I think, my early narrative of, of look, I'm, I'm probably not going to do great inside of, of an existing corporate culture. It's, uh, it's probably going to be a better fit for 
me to try to to find product market fit somewhere else and be able to create my own startup and then ultimately uh, corporate culture that, that I can help define and with with a group of people that I get to pick that will help me define that corporate culture. Yes, as I mentioned before, I quite like the idea of um, the metaphor of sheep and goats. And if you're naturally born a goat, you like sort of leaping around the crags and doing your own thing. And if you're naturally born and there's a spectrum between the two, of course. If you're naturally born a sheep, you quite like to sort of being in the herd, nibbling the grass for a, for a quiet uh, life. And a, a few times, I, I'm a natural goat, but a few times I've tried to be a sheep, and it's never worked out very well, actually. But uh, talking about going independent, I mean, I worked for others for longer, so I worked for other people for, ooh, 16 years or something. And then I, I, I very well remember in 1998 going home one day on the train. I've now been independent for 23 years, so worked for myself. And it's quite funny, the habits of the mind. So I'd obviously got more after 16 years than, than a few years. And I was looking out the window, thinking, oh, those people at work, I mean, God. And I sort of, I just, it was like an automatic thought, you know, it shoots into your mind like a, a meteorite. You know, these people I report to, kind of stuff. And I suddenly thought, I, I saw my reflection in the window of the, the railway carriage. I thought, Mike, it's you. It's only you. <laughs> At which point, actually, uh, I learned a valuable lesson very soon. And not everybody learns this, which is that, you know, if you spend your life in companies, you have some good bosses and bad bosses and something in the middle. But actually, people can be their own worst boss in a way because we know all of our own weaknesses and we know where we were sort of taking it easy a bit and something like that. So it took me quite some time to kind of psychologically adjust to, quotes being my own boss. So, I mean, people might think, oh, that's who's never done it. Oh, that's wonderful. Gosh, I'd like to do that. I'd be a great boss, blah, blah, blah. But actually, you may find that when you're bossing yourself, you're actually tougher than uh, most people would be on you. Yes, I think that's that's probably true. I think a, a, a consistent theme that I've seen amongst uh, uh, entrepreneurs and, and, and startup founders, etc., is probably a harsh inner voice, a, an inner voice that propels them harder probably than a than a boss might uh, might propel them. Uh, and oftentimes, even though that harsh inner voice is not always constructive, it usually motivates and at least gets movement. Uh, and, and that does seem to be a common trait amongst entrepreneurs. Yes, the, some driving force is quite helpful these days. There's almost a sort of an implicit idea that some people had it easy in life and had all the advantages and all that. And some people have, by definition. But quite often you, you find that those people aren't particularly driven because they've never had to be. They've never been sort of pushed over on their face in the gutter and had to sort of pick themselves up and dust themselves down. And, and often it can be people from a difficult or challenging background at whatever stage in their life who've got some inner drive, you know, who, who actually want to want to get out there and um, do stuff. So I don't think it's simply the case that sort of uh, uh, entrepreneurs are the kind of sort of fortunate people who never had anything go wrong. Quite often, actually, they had their challenges in life and actually that's given them the drive to sort of, in Stephen Pressfield terms, go pro. Hey, let's do this properly. You know, I'm not just going to turn up and dial it in nine to five or nine to six or whatever the hours are these days. Actually, I'm going to do give it my best shot. And it's, it's that desire to give it your best shot. As you say, as long as you can sort of sometimes turn off the, the voice in the mind, which says, oh, that was quite a good shot, but you could do better because you'll go insane if every day you try and be better than the previous day for sort of a few few decades that drives us forward. So we'd mentioned primates before. Maybe we should gloss over the sort of primatology because it might be a little bit of a, a, a tangent. But in terms of humans belonging to uh, sort of whatever they are in, in biology, uh, sort of species or subspecies or whatever they are, or a genus or something, which consists of social animals who live in groups and uh, families. Uh, you said that one of the things that had taught you um, from a different angle, as it were, about managing people in the office, about attracting, well, not so much attracting talent for the reasons that become obvious, but <laughs> retaining talent and keeping them happy was uh, family management, shall we say, and being a father. 
That's right. And and a lot of my, especially my early career, like in my 20s when I was starting in, uh, companies and trying to get them off the ground, I took a lot of lessons from being a single dad. I was a, a single dad, still am a single dad, two wonderful kids. They're, they're now 24 and, and 20. But trying to start a family and, and start a company at the same time was, uh, you know, it, it had certain parallels, uh, certainly provided some challenges. I think I've, as I've matured as, uh, as an individual and, and as a CEO, I've come to appreciate that the family metaphor for companies probably breaks down pretty significantly. It really is a very distinctly different thing. And I think, you know, if you've been looking at this a lot, especially in the last few years about how how important the corporate culture is to the social fabric of any society. And I think corporations are trying to figure out what their place is beyond just profits, uh, beyond just uh, providing a great service. Uh, do they have a responsibility to this to society as well? Uh, I would say resoundingly yes. Uh, trying to find what that place is, how appropriate uh, and, and how loud the corporate uh, culture and the corporate communication should be as a part of that, I think still needs to be determined. Uh, but there's certainly a place for it and, and distinct from family, distinct, distinct from government, distinct from nonprofits, distinct from church, uh, there is a place uh, in, in the social fabric for, for corporations and certainly startups who spend a lot of time, uh, inordinate amount of time, thinking about how do they create the right kind of culture for their, for their company. Yes, I mean, um, going back to um, groups of primates or family members or clans in some areas of the world, never in my area of the world to have a sense of clan. And then you've got the church, which is rather atrophied over here. But then you've got the corporation and, and above the corporation, you've literally got the, the state as a whole, the society as a whole. And as I mentioned before, I'm a big fan of Ibn Khaldun, the 14th century Tunisian historiographer. Uh, who did a study of the um, Arab tribes, a comparative study. Um, and he said the successful tribes, and here a tribe can be a metaphor for society, for company, for family, are those with asabiyah, as he called it, strong centripetal force, something that binds them together. So a, a, a new tribe will emerge from the desert, as it did in, in North Africa, generally from the eastern side, uh, and come and sort of conquer the whole of North Africa or something, because they really pulled together you know, they were, again, going back to a football team or, or a rowing crew or something, they were all literally pulling in the, in the same direction. And then what would happen is over time, they get sort of wealthy and indolent and, and lazy and start falling out amongst each other. And then that sort of society would uh, declare, I did a New Year special on this, a much larger level in terms of Spengler and his cyclical theory of history, the same thing about civilization, civilizations rise uh, and civilizations fall. And so um, I would have thought, uh, looking at it from the outside, that in terms of retaining talent, we'll come on in a minute maybe to attracting, and but I think a good culture attracts people. In terms of retaining talent, it's the same kind of thing that you as a founder have to, at a very simple level, bond people together, have some centripetal force, have some defining principle, whatever it may be, that says, look, this is who we are at payability. Th this is who we are, which has great advantages because somebody said, oh, I don't like that kind of thing then they don't bother to come in and you don't get all the challenges there. And someone says, hey, that's the kind of culture I want to work for. But it has to be this sort of centripetal force pulling people together, which, as we'll come on to talking about COVID world, uh, is more tricky when everyone's just sitting at home and not actually in the office buying each other's coffees. I think that's exactly right. And I think really, really important there is that that concept of, of that common attribute. What is that common attribute? And I think, you know, my thinking certainly has changed on that or at least gotten 
uh, what I believe is to be just deeper thinking and more precise about what it is that I think the common attribute is of the folks at, at Payability, as an example. Um, and I think one of the traps that is easy for any founder to fall into is that you confuse uh, the the attributes that you're looking for commonality uh, to end up being kind of this this homogenous group of folks. And so, if if you are a you know white middle aged male founder, which I am, then you may look around and start to say, hey, the common attributes are the folks that I interact with that sound like me, that talk like me, that that uh, that look at the world like me. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you have a group of folks around you that look and sound exactly like you. And if they then look for genius in the same way, then all of a sudden, before you know it, you have, you know, no diversity, no inclusion, and, and some of the challenges that we have today. And so, so if, we, if you break down what are the core attributes that we need to pay ability, and I think this is probably true for the vast majority of startups, is that we need people who are, are open to change. And that sounds super simple, but, but here's the concept that, that I think is really important is that if you look at the way that we as humans do things today, the vast majority of us, 8 billion people across the planet, the, the vast majority for, for us, the, the, the reason why we do things the way we do things today is because that's how we did things yesterday. And if you play that back far enough, it kind of leads to a world that isn't really open to change. And so what we look for as a core attribute is we want to find people who want to be able to improve the way things are and are open to being able to change the way we did things yesterday in order to be able to make things better. That requires that having a vision for what you want in the future, but being open to change and then being smart enough to be able to figure out how to affect that change. Those are really the core attributes that we look for. And then we can look for a very wide, diverse group of folks who all share that one attribute and we can hopefully then set about to, to change some things. Yes, it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I was reflecting on almost 40 years of careers and when I started working in 1983 it was a different world and certainly Climate Benson which was kind of one of the last of the imperial merchant banks I use the word imperial advisedly because it was behind the attitude that kind of had a very much kind of um, costume drama country house um, a, a series which have been many on the tv over here in the, the sort of the back office and the traders were kind of like the downstairs tradesmen and the management cadre was very undiverse using anybody's definition of undiverse in that the board members off the top of my head is about 12 out of 14 went to Eton for example so it wasn't just a question that in the manager's dining room which had Barry's wine on the on the table it shows how, how many things have changed <laughs> over, over the decades until some Puritan put a stop to that as it wasn't sort of business-like or something but the majority would be public school, for example. And to take that even further, having done work in Iceland and Japanese, which are very homogeneous countries culturally, what I think the corollary is, which isn't really emphasised because everybody's too scared of not being PC, which is that to the extent that one lives in a much more multicultural society, multi-ethnic society, greater participation of, of, of women, you know, when I was a kid, there weren't many women full-time um, in the workforce, is that in those circumstances, actually, just in my personal observation, it is more important to provide a culture, a defining culture, than it was in the past, or than it is in Japan, or than it is in Iceland. Because, going back to Clark Benson, because so many people came from a, a similar educational background, and off the top of my head, I mean, public schools might be, which, uh, private schools in American terms, uh, might be something like 8% still of the country, so it's less than 1 in 10. And there was a heavy skew towards males. And then within that, as I say, so the major public schools dominated. One advantage of such an approach is that less effort is required on culture 
because all of your staff are literally like little iron filings. They're all pointing in the same direction in the first place. Now, that can mean they're totally unresponsive and the merchant banks don't really exist anymore, apart from Rothschild, so it obviously implies they did. They can be unresponsive to seeing things from 90 degree perspective that are other, other people, and also people who weren't brought up in that culture, which like all cultures had strengths and weaknesses, might see. But as I say, I think just based on my experience, if you're forming a startup in Iceland or if you're forming a startup in Japan, you may not have to provide too much of the culture there because you'll have a large degree of homogeneity. If you're starting one in New York, if you're starting one in London, then perhaps you need to be more conscious of the culture than you would have done 30 or 40 years ago because you've got people from all over the world. And especially with the tech dimension, tech is becoming so globalized. I mean, before COVID, most of the people on the show were, were, were from London or the UK fintechs, but now they're around the world. So you've got this also sort of added dimension in, which is, for example, you know, you need to understand if you're going to try and be a global fintech, you need to really understand the Chinese mentality. You know, if you're going to be big in Africa, you need to understand what goes on there or, 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 or South America. So there, there starts to be an infinite number of dimensions to be to be bound together. You know, and so you've got this globalized versus localized thing, which the likes of Google and Facebook have had to, had to face, which is on the one hand, you want to be one company and one kind of product, as it were, or, or product suite. But on the other hand, you have to localize them. I think that's exactly right. And I think, it, I think it's incredibly hard to be a monoculture company selling to a multicultural audience. And so the ability to be able to understand the perspective of your customers, uh, to be able to to think like your customers, to be able to have the, the benefit and the value uh, of the insights uh, from a multicultural kind of, of, uh, of, of group is the only way to be able to then turn around and be able to have a, an, you know, an audience and a customer base that, that you can serve appropriately that is, that is multicultural. And in just about every case in modern society, any sort of technology online type of business is by definition going to have a multicultural audience, uh, and and if they don't, they certainly could, uh, and they may be missing out on tremendous opportunities if they if they don't. Yes, totally. And I can think of a, a, a well, an Icelandic example, and uh, one or two in FS in in Germany that have suffered because they've got too much of the the one perspective on it, and equally. I'm just drawing a little caricature to to make a point about how important it is to create a culture these days compared to what it was in the past. Because a prime example is that the car firms that the likes of Nissan. Japanese manufacturer set up in the UK, far better managed, produced far better products than any British car firm did. So that's not just a culture thing, that's just a sort of a competence, which is actually the Japanese are really good at, at making cars and, and the British became pretty rubbish at uh, making it in the 60s and, and, and the 70s. So uh, yes, it's important to pull these things together. So in terms of, of, of having a culture, you've then got the the challenge of communicating it. So let's say I give up my wondrous life of podcasting and I, and I start working for payability tomorrow. And maybe we can blend this into the sort of the, uh, people say COVID-19, but it's really the sort of the government's response to COVID-19 challenges, of course, that, that we all are dealing with. If I join your firm today, then I continue sitting in exactly the same place I was sitting yesterday. But maybe just, we'll put that to one side. Let's say you've got a London office and I go and join the London office. You're in New York, so you've got the first question is how do you communicate your culture within your office, quotes, unquotes, in New York? I mean, you may have two or three, but let's keep it simple. And then you say you've got half a dozen, I don't know how many offices you've got, you'll tell us later maybe, but say you've got half a dozen offices around the world. How do you communicate that culture over there? How does it get localised? And then how does some new joiner, whether it's in New York or whether it's in London or whether it's in Tokyo, how do they get trained in the culture? How do they know what's expected of them in this company? Quite a challenge. 
It's a great question, and it's a huge challenge, and it's one that's changed dramatically just in this last year and, and changed abruptly. And frankly, there are some things that we did well with that change and some that we were too slow to enact. But, but, but I think there's some core principles that I have there about culture. The first one is, is that we have to be purposeful about the kind of culture that we are going to create. And so unlike a family, we, for the most part, get to choose which company we get to go work for. And so families, we, we typically don't get the option. We, we just find ourselves there. As a result, oftentimes our families aren't as purposeful about the kind of culture that they want to create. Companies, they tend to be younger institutions, oftentimes, especially in, in the startup world. And it's important to be purposeful about it. So, so start by having the conversation, talking about it, saying, let's not just develop this on, on accident. Let's be thoughtful about what kind of culture we want to create. Um, so that's kind of principle one. The second one is that the culture of the company can be and should be, I think, led by the CEO, but it shouldn't be owned solely by the CEO. It's just something that is a shared responsibility. And every single employee, every single team member needs to feel a responsibility to forward further uh, and improve the overall company culture and, and frankly help define it. And that changes with stage of the company because it's a very different thing if you're a, a one of the first 50 employees at a company where you really are aiming the, the cultural rocket. You are you are setting the stage for what this uh, what the culture is going to look like. And it's different when you come in after that. There's still significant responsibilities on either side, but it's just a kind of a different set of responsibilities. So we talk a lot about how Hey, look, you have your day job. Maybe you're a programmer. Maybe you're in sales. Maybe you're in marketing. In addition to that day job, in addition, in addition to performing, you know, incredibly well in that day job, you also have an additional job, which is to think about and better the culture of the company. And there's kind of two simple tests that we have, at least for internal happiness. And this is not the gauge or the metric for everything as it relates to culture by any means, but they're two important just kind of, uh, of, of, of rules of thumb that I use. And, and one is I call it the best friend test. Would you refer your best friend? to come and work here? And if not, why is that? And what do we need to do to make this a better place so that you would feel good about telling your best friend that, hey, this is the kind of place you'd want to come spend your, your, your waking hours, the bulk of your waking hours. The second one is what I call the Sunday night test. And I used, uh, this is one that I would fail uh, every time when I worked for another large corporation is that Sunday night would come around and I would start realizing how much more I like my weekends than I like Monday mornings. And, and, and that's true for all of us. Uh, and if it's not true, there's, you know, you, you may, you know, be one of those few blessed people who just likes work more than you like play. But for most of us, we're still going to enjoy our weekend probably than we're going to enjoy the work week. However, there shouldn't be a sense of dread on Sunday night that you're having to go back to the grindstone and, and going back to the salt mines and, and doing something that you hate. There should be some amount of joy and glee. And, and if you're not passing the Sunday night test, then I think it's worth asking the question, what's wrong? What can we change? What should we be doing different as a company and as a group of folks? in order to be able to make this a more enjoyable thing because this is where we spend the bulk of our time. And if we can start with those two things and with this kind of core idea of, look, we are looking for ways to improve things, not just do things the way we did them yesterday, then you have a good foundation with which to build upon. Yes, we'll return to the question in, in, in a second of the, the onboarding challenge uh, normally and also in COVID. But I think one point to to mention within that, and we can't take all day on the, on the podcast because it's a, an infinite topic one could talk about forevermore, which is that, maybe I'll give a sort of simplest example, even in a monocultural society, I think Icelandic, Iceland is something, I don't know, 99.5% Icelandic or something like that, all companies are multicultural, in an old climate it's multicultural because the salesmen will have their own subculture, the marketers will have their own subculture, the techies will have their own subculture, so you've got sort of, as it were, an overarching 
culture for the company, which is perhaps something like a, a prioritisation of, uh, of virtues. So if I think of app banks in London, I can think of one that's totally focused on performance and success. And that's their number one virtue and value. And so everything kind of falls from that. And I can think of another one, which is more focused on actually being a nice place and bonding everybody together so that their happiness coefficient is thing. So the first one's more challenging and it goes faster and it's a more sort of, for the sake of argument, American investment bank. And the other one's a bit more cuddlier and cosier and, and supportive. So just on that, so we, you've got the subcultures, but also you've got this presumably prioritization of values. You know, what's the top value in this company? The top value in this company is performance. You know, you shape up or you ship out. Now, some people like that environment. Or the top value in this company is we actually like to develop our people and bring them on patiently, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And, I, in, and if you just take a salesperson versus a, a programmer, developer, you know, we can just, you know, we, we think of the profile instantly in our heads and we say, yeah, those folks don't have the same culture in terms of just how they go about their day, what their worldview is, how they like to interact with other humans. All of those things are stereotypes that we just think of. And those stereotypes are there for a large degree because salespeople like talking to people and, you know, developers wouldn't mind putting on their headphones and, and you know, never having synchronous human interaction ever again, you know, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a stereotype. And so there's plenty that break out of either one of those stereotypes in both of those, but, but that is a common thread. And so trying to figure out how do you find a common culture amongst these, uh, these, these different teams is really important. Uh, and it's certainly uh, a, a competitive advantage. If you can figure out how to have, be able to have an effective operating system, because that's really what a culture ends up providing you with is, is an operating system with which how you communicate and prioritize values within your corporation or within your entity. And you can do that across these disparate groups like sales and programmers. Then all of a sudden you have something that's really powerful and, and the ability then to be able to use that as a as a platform to be able to communicate. This is our strategy. These are our goals. This is how we will measure success. Now let's go and do it. Uh, it becomes very, very, very effective. So just on this onboarding point, it's a challenge. So I join your company tomorrow. I mean, there's in interview processes and all that, in which case these things are being communicated either explicitly or implicitly. But how do you onboard people and, and how long does it take to get into the culture? And just going back to uh, uh, rule of thumb, I remember in the past, David Clementi, who was a former deputy governor of the Bank of England, as well as a former boss of mine at Climeworks, I think he said that um, he said he didn't consider anybody a Climeworks person until they'd been there for five years. And, uh, and I used to think it was funny. Until later, I revised my opinion to, you're not really a Climeworks person until you've been there a decade. Because once you've been there a considerable period of time, you've absorbed, you've absorbed everything. But the modern world moves so much faster now we've got computers and all that kind of stuff. And you can't just wait for five or 10 years for, for me who joins tomorrow to sort of uh, work out what your culture is really about. So how is the communication done? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. And, and I remember when I moved to New York, I've been here about three months and I mentioned to somebody who was born and raised in New York, I said, yeah, now that I'm a New Yorker, and they <laughs> looked asconced at me and said, be here for a decade before you can call yourself a New Yorker. So that was that was a, the shot across the bow that, uh, that that you have to, to pay your dues. And I think in a, in, a, in a startup culture in particular, you can't allow it to take 10 years to be a part of the culture. Uh, somebody has to be a part of the culture immediately. You have to figure out how to be able to slipstream them into not only figuring out the culture, but adding to the culture. And so, uh, you know, and, and payability is still relatively small. We're, we're a little less than 100 employees now. We've added about 30 employees in the last year. Uh, um, and so, you know, just the idea that we've added that many folks that I've never shaken their hand you know, actually been in the same room with them. Uh, they don't know if I'm seven feet tall or five feet tall. All of those kinds of just uh, of things are missing from from any of that sort of interaction. And so figuring out how do we 
build trust? How do we get folks to be able to feel like they are a part of the culture and be additive to the culture? So we've done a lot of things just like regimenting some of the communication that we would have done much more organically in the past, writing a lot more stuff down, scheduling things like Zoom calls where you can start to do pairing with other folks. And so, you know, maybe you start off in, in CX and so you're going to be doing customer support. Let's make sure that you get a couple of hours uh, sitting with somebody in underwriting, some, uh, a couple hours sitting with folks in sales, a couple hours with folks sitting in marketing, uh, with product management. Um, but it's interesting being able to shadow folks becomes with technology much easier. You can, I can sit here at my desk. I can have somebody shadow with me. They can just kind of come along for the ride with me. They don't even have to pull up a chair. So some of those things are easier, but you just have to be more intentional about them. Uh, one of the other things that we've done is, is we started uh, a buddy program. And this is something I've done at any company previously, but usually once we got to be a bit bigger, usually kind of at that magic number of about 150, where the company culture really starts to change. And we found that we just started to have these impacts earlier. And, and part of that is also due to the fact that we have an international employee base. Half of our employees are in Poland and half of our employees are in New York City. And so we implemented this idea of when you come in, you get assigned a buddy and they are somebody who has been in the company for a long time, somebody who has been here to shape the culture for a long period of time and to help just with any of the questions that you might have. You know, it's it's the, instead of saying, hey, where's the bathroom and and, uh, and what's the best coffee shop that's around here? It's all of the other kind of cultural kinds of things. How do I find this? What if I need this particular report? Uh, who would I see for this kind of information? Uh, um, how best do I communicate with this group? All of those kinds of just little questions that come up. You get somebody in another team, usually not your, uh, you know, part of your same team uh, and usually somebody that you don't report to, to be able to help guide you and hold your hand through those. And those are the kinds of things that just create an extend the human interaction in a non-human interaction world. Excellent. Well, that's very clear. And say we could talk about this for the rest of the day and perhaps the rest of the week. And uh, I'm really just after trying to give listeners a flavour of some of the issues and, and, and some of what you've said or some of what I've said or what's come out of the conversation may help spark people thinking about the company they're in the moment, what, what can be done and all that. So that's all very interesting. I hope uh, all you listeners out there uh, are in uh, countries, families, clans, companies uh, or whatever um, uh, with a positive culture uh, and if not maybe you can try and nudge it a little bit in the right direction i'd like to thank my brand partner for the podcast smart who's transforming pensions and retirement worldwide their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the uk now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like zurich and jp morgan find out more at www.smart.co theunlistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today Right. Okay. So on to payability, Keith. Um, you've been perhaps extremely well behaved as a guest and perhaps the most be- well behaved guest of all time in that many managed to slip a little bit of sort of uh, the quite a bit of their company in the middle and, and listeners probably know quite a bit before we get to the end. But actually didn't really give very much information about payability. So maybe you'd just ex- like to explain to the listeners a little bit more about who payability is, uh, what you do, uh, where you're successful and what you need more of to make you even more successful. I'm happy to give a, a commercial for payability because I'm super proud of what we do. Uh, so how I describe it is that here at payability, we invest in e-commerce sellers. Uh, and so these are the folks that are selling online, uh, typically through platforms or channels. Think uh, uh, Amazon sellers, Walmart sellers, Shopify sellers. Those are the types of, of e-commerce sellers that we provide capital for and that we invest in. Uh, we help them in, in three specific ways. We provide them with daily working capital. Uh, we, we help them to be able to buy advertising. We help them to be able to buy inventory. Uh, so we have specialized finance products that, that, that help those e-commerce sellers in those three particular areas. Uh, so if you can grow your business faster, if you're an e-commerce seller and you can grow your business faster, if you had access to capital, 
come see us at Payability. We've invested over $3 billion already into e-commerce sellers, and we're just getting started. And what do you need more of over the next few years to make Payability even bigger and better than it is today? So we, we certainly are going to, which is, of course, you know, on, 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 uh, on topic with what we've been discussing today, we need more amazing folks to join us uh, that, are, that are going to be committed to helping us improve, make things better, uh, and, and figure out better ways to be able to remove the friction from financing for e-commerce sellers. We are absolutely committed to that. That's our big mission. Beyond that, though, really what we want is we want to make sure that we have a bigger impact on the world. So we want more e-commerce sellers uh, to realize they can grow their business, often they can grow their business much more effectively if they have access to reliable, scalable capital that will grow with them as they grow their business month over month over month as they continue to grow. So we need more ambitious, enterprising e-commerce sellers that want to grow their businesses to uh, to come work with us, get access to capital. We'll partner with you. We will fund your growth and, and help you, frankly, build a really interesting, reliable business for the future. And you said that your staff are in the States and Poland, or predominantly in the States and Poland. In terms of your clients, in which countries, I'm not sure whether countries means much in e-commerce terms, but uh, anyway, you know where I'm coming from. Uh, Which countries uh, are you active client-wise? So we're focused on the U.S. in this sense, is that we are focused on on e-commerce sellers that sell in the U.S. So selling through U.S.-based platforms uh, and and those sales being denominated in U.S. dollars, some extension into Canada as well. Uh, those sellers can be from all over the world, and they often are, but they are selling in the U.S. We will ultimately expand outside of just the U.S. out of out of those sellers that are selling just in the U.S., but, but today uh, and for the last five years, that's where we've been focused. Excellent. Well, Thank you very much for that. Time has absolutely flown by, and I don't think we've given the sort of very last word uh, on people management, but I don't think we ever can. And this is one of the good things about being a manager or a founder or a CEO, which is that one's always learning. And I think the day that we think we know it all um, stop learning, then you know we're, we're old and we should be uh, retiring because the world is always changing, culture is always changing, business is always changing, and what can be done tomorrow is always different from um, today. Uh, but it's been certainly a, an interesting conversation. It's made me think back at the sort of various um, comparisons. And I think one thing that's come out of it for me, which is that realising that culture was not something that had been spoken about when I started working, largely because it was uh, implicit. Uh, but now it needs to be rendered more explicit to, to tie together more groups of people internationally and globally then it's something that um, all founders need to be devoting more and more time to. There's one founder whose name escapes me, who's on the podcast before, who actually wrote a book to be shared internally. I mean, this is, the, this is the company's culture. So it's something that can always be worked on. And I've heard from a number of entrepreneurs that one of the advantages of having a good cu- culture is it's so much easier to manage. Because a bit like iron filings, everybody's pointing kind of in the right way, or most people are pointing roughly in the right way in the first place, which makes it so much easier than if everybody's just pointing in random directions. So I thank you very much for that, Keith. It's been fascinating, and I wish you every success in the future. Thanks, Mike. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride
come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so grey Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.